We'll be reading from Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, to the end of chapter 7. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as a sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Natali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to a God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Our great Heavenly Father, thank you again for this morning and for this word. 
with all that's happened over the last few months, weeks leading up to last weekend as we farewelled the CEC team, the Centenary Evangelical Church team, uh, we pray that you'll bring us here together here, gathered together, that we would rejoice again, that we would uh, find comfort from this word, encouragement and empowerment to keep sharing the great news that Jesus is uh, our Savior, the Lion, the Lamb, the one who was slain for us, the one who rules and reigns forevermore. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb on the throne. May that be our cry today and our cry into our world as we share this great news and continue to do so. Father, we pray for your Spirit's help. Bless us to help us understand this word. Help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. And we ask all of this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we had our all-in gathering, and I heard from quite a few people that it was quite emotional. Uh, Emotional saying farewell to friends and family that we've known for so long. And we rejoice that Centenary Evangelical Church is holding their first ever service today. Yes, that is the setup uh, in their meeting space. It's so professional. And I'm sure that we'll get more photos of uh, that, that first gathering in the meantime, and we'll post them online on our Facebook page, and we'll, we'll send them out to the different chat groups as well. Now, with all that in mind, let me ask a simple question. Of everything, in everything that we've gone through, let me ask this question. Who here feels like they're ready to do another church plant right now? Hands up. You're lying. (laughs) Not many of us. Maybe Jordan is, but not many of us, right? Um, It's understandable. It is a lot of work, right? And the goodbyes that we had last week. Maybe we're not so keen to go there so soon again. So, okay, maybe not so soon. I'm I'm not... I'll be very clear. We're not planning another church plant for at least another six months. No. Um, (laughs) It's going to be, it might be a little while away. Perhaps, though, I might ask, though, when? When would we do it again? And even more importantly, can I ask, what's going to motivate us to do it again? To plant another church? Why would we want to go through the pain all over again? And today, the answer to that question is simple. Revelation chapter 7, that's why. Uh, Revelation is not an easy book. Um, This sermon, uh, I inserted it about six months ago, realizing that um, as we plant the church, it might be good to think on this passage and reflect on it together. It is the third in our church planting series that we started last year, nine months ago. Uh, And so if you're looking for it on the webpage, it'll be under there. Uh, But Revelation isn't an easy book, mostly because it's written in a form that we're really unfamiliar with. Uh, So as we dive into this chapter, it'll be super important to look at the context so we know where we are. Uh, And if you didn't know, we did preach through this book last, early last, uh, no, early 2021. Uh, And so um, the book opens uh, with seven uh, letter to seven churches uh, in chapters two to three. You can find that sermon series on our website. Uh, Then in chapters 4 to 5, which is also a sermon series on our church website, we have a scene from the heavenly throne room 
where the famous appearance of Jesus, who appears as both a lion and a lamb, the scene is moved forward by a little scroll with seven seals. Now, this scroll represents God's will for the world. John, who is seeing this vision, is profoundly sad as he stands in the throne room that no one in that throne room is able to open that seal, open this scroll. And because no one can open it, that means God's will is unable to move forward. And then he hears, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he turns and sees a lamb, Jesus. The lamb takes that scroll and he breaks the seals, and then God's will for the world starts pouring out in chapter 6. There are seven seals on that scroll, and each time a seal is broken, a form of judgment rolls out onto the earth. Death, famine, war. All these scary moments start working their way through the world. Now, how should we think about all of these events that are happening in, in those chapters? I think sometimes when we read the book of Revelation, we think of it like a news report. When, we're, when you're hearing a news report, you're expecting a, a detailed chronological description of events. And so this past week, you may have heard of the fire that was on the north side of Brisbane in Marumba, uh, Marumba Downs, is it? Yeah. Um, the news report was that it, w- it w- went like this. It was a Wednesday morning. A massive explosion was heard, even from neighboring suburbs. Neighbors were evacuated. Firefighters were called. An emergency situation was declared. And then eventually the firefighters were able to extinguish the flames in the evening. Now, you hear that news report and you think to yourself, yeah, that was the sequence of events that happened. But the book of Revelation is actually a little bit more like an art gallery, not a news report. See, you've got all these scenes that are just kind of stuck next to each other and they each have their own story to tell and they're not necessarily in a news report sequence. You can see that when in the move from chapter 6 to chapter 7. Chapter 6 sounds like the end of time. It sounds like the end of the world sort of stuff. That chapter finishes with a question in all of this judgment that is being poured out. This question that uh, Chi read out for us in, in verse six, uh, 17 uh, of chapter 6. In all of this judgment that is being poured out, who is able to stand? That's the question. And then chapter 7 breaks in and begins to answer that, that question. And chapter 7 breaks in, and instead of taking us to the end, it brings us to the present, to what's happening right now. So who is able to stand in the day of judgment? Let's see what this new scene brings with us in the opening verses. Read with me again verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So we open up meeting four angels. They spread out across the globe, and then a fifth angel gives them one job. Hold back judgment. Hold it back. 
Hold back the winds, do not harm the earth and the sea. The judgments that are flying out of chapter 6 are now held up. A pause is put to them. But for how long? Have a look at the end of verse 3 again. Until we have sealed the the servants of our God on their foreheads. Who are these servants of God that the angel is speaking about? It comes to verse 4 and we find out their identity. Now, notice that verse 4, in verse 4, it begins with John hearing something. He hears something. And then in verse 9, we read that he looked and he saw. Now, this isn't the only time these actions of hearing and seeing are paired together in the book of Revelation, right? It happens in chapter 5, remember? When John hears an angel say, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and then he turns to see the lamb, the lion and the lamb from the tribe of Judah. And then he uh, are the same thing, the lion and the lamb, the same thing. It also happens at the end of the book. John hears an angel say, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he sees a city coming down from heaven, out of heaven from God. Right? The bride and the city, again, the same thing. And that's important to note here in chapter 7 because I think the same thing is meant to be happening here. John hears something, and then he sees something else, but these two descriptions are of the same thing. So what does John hear? Verse 4, he hears the number of those who are sealed, the number of them being 144,000 from every tribe of Israel. Now, this number is not literal like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. It's a symbolic number. The number 12 in the book of Revelation often represents, always represents, the people of God. The number 1,000 represents a very large, uncountable number. And so 144,000 is a symbolic way of saying the total number of God's people, the totality of God's people. But remember, When John hears and sees something in quick succession, we're meant to take these things as being the same. And so John hears these Israelites, but then he sees more than just the literal 144,000 people. In verse 9, he sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. See, here is John seeing the incredible fruit of the gospel of Jesus. In the past, people, the people of God were limited to a, a select nation, so you had to be born into it to, or jump quite a few hurdles to join them. But now the people of God includes people like you and me. People who are not born Israelites, people who had no idea how to form a relationship with God, people who were outsiders. But now through faith in Jesus, those who are outsiders have been brought into the inner circle of God's people. This countless multitude represents the totality of God's people, and they are not just made up of Israelites, but also Iranians, Egyptians, Libyans, and Nigerians. French and Italians will be represented. Ukrainians and Russians will joyfully stand side by side there. From Brazil to Nepal, from Thailand to Japan, Zimbabwe to Indonesia, Singaporeans, 
Malaysians, and yes, even people who live on the north side of Brisbane. <laughs> they do exist. They will all stand and be counted in this countless multitude. In 1962, Don Richardson took his wife into the heart of New Guinea to reach the Sawi tribe with the gospel. The Sawi tribe were fearsomely known as cannibals who valued treachery, who when they heard the gospel story for the first time, they thought Judas was the hero of the story. But through patiently learning their culture and their stories, Richardson was able to show them the true value of Jesus and the entire tribe converted to following Jesus. The Sawi tribe will stand among this countless multitude. In 1953, a young man named Jim Elliott married a woman named Elizabeth. Their first child, Valerie, was born in 1955. Jim was a missionary with a burning desire to reach the violent Oakers, an indigenous tribe in Ecuador. After finding their location, Jim and four other missionaries made friendly contact with three of the tribe. But then they were one day ambushed and speared to death by them. Widowed, with her 10-month-old daughter, Elizabeth went back as a missionary to the Oakers, the tribe that killed her husband. Many in the tribe, including the men who speared Jim and his fellow missionaries to death, came to the Lord. The Oakers will stand among the countless multitude. And so it will be for among the hundreds of thousands of small and large tribes around the world throughout the past 2,000 years. We live, we, we live in a world that, that seeks diversity and, and representation, and yet it, it's become such an incredibly divisive topic in our world. But here in Revelation 7, we see true diversity and representation and the most united group there will ever be in history. See what they cry out together at the end of verse 10 with a united voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in verses 11 and 12, the heavenly representatives, the angels and the elders, they join in with their own blessing. The countless multitude of diverse people from languages join with the heavenly host to celebrate the Lamb. Jesus is the focus of their joy, their praise, and their worship. And then one of the elders turns to John and asks a question in a bit of a funny moment. Uh, the elder asks John, hey, John, you have any idea who these people are? And John answers, his answer is the perfect answer for when someone asks you a tough question that you don't know the answer to. He replies, sir, you know. I dare any of the students here, in, uh, to, when you're going back to class this week, to answer your teacher or your lecturer in your class, to ask you a question you don't know. You answer this way, sir, ma'am, you, you know. Right? And at the end of verse 14, the elder, John gives, uh, the elder gives John the answer. Now, two things mark out these people in white robes. Now, 
bear with me. This is a very technical part in the sermon. I'm going to be reading a lot of this, so please stick with me. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the timing of uh, who these people are uh, and talk a little bit about what makes them unique in terms of their white robes and stuff like that. So, so bear with me, okay? So the first is that uh, these people in white robes have come out of the Great Tribulation. Uh, now, what is the Great Tribulation? Or perhaps a, a, another question is, when? When is this Great Tribulation? And the answer to that question To cut a very long story short, and you can ask me about the long story later, I think the Great Tribulation refers to the entire time between Jesus' first and second coming. The entire time. So we would technically be living right now in the Great Tribulation. More important is what is the Great Tribulation? Now, there's some Old Testament background to this in the prophet Daniel. But the Great Tribulation is marked by a time of great difficulty for believers, opposition and persecution for what Christians believe, sometimes financially, sometimes relationally, sometimes at the cost of their lives. Sometimes it's benign, sometimes, but often it's intense. And, you know, we saw this opposition and persecution beginning in the book of Acts, and you see it throughout church history, and you see it in our world today. Believers... These people, this multitude, are saved out of the Great Tribulation. Now, how are they saved out of it? By washing their robes, making them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is not a laundry uh, hack, right? White robes washed in blood. It doesn't work, right? But again, so again, we're dealing with symbolic language. White, the color, represents purity and holiness, People who are unstained, who are forgiven and reconciled to God. People who stand before God justified. As those who are not only just innocent of any sin or any wrongdoing, but also declared to have always done what is right. Now, how is that possible? How can anyone stand before God, not just innocent of wrong, but as though you have always done and thought what is right? And the answer is the blood of the Lamb. This is one of the most central parts of the gospel, what some people call the great exchange. Here's what happens when people put their trust in Jesus. Here is how God sees people legally, his people legally. Right? You are a sinner, stained by sin. Right? Now, you, you hear that word. We often, sometimes we hear that word and we begin kind of shutting off. Right? But stick with me for a second and let me ask a few diagnostic questions to see if it makes sense that we're sinners. Have you, have you ever noticed in your life that it's marked by disordered passions and love? There are just things that aren't right in your life. You want to do what is right, you want to think and treat people well and good, but you know those times when you've acted selfishly and self-servingly. Ever had that? And then you feel that sense of shame and guilt for it all. Maybe it's underlying, maybe it's subtle, but it's there. If you've ever grown up in a Catholic background... Those feelings of guilt and shame can be quite familiar. 
But even if you haven't, you know what it's like to, to feel a sense of unworthiness or lousiness. And if this isn't familiar, you're probably feeling proud or you're ignorant. Right? In either case, that's where you stand before God. And because of your inherent sin, none of us is worthy to stand before God. All of us deserve his wrath and his condemnation. But notice in this passage that the multitude is able to stand before God. Why? How? This great exchange. Trusting Jesus does this. He wipes away your sin, your sinful state before God. You're still a sinner. You still feel the impact of it. But how he sees you is though you've been wiped away, clean of it. Jesus takes it all on himself. This is why he was punished on the cross. This is what he's punished on the cross for. Your sin, my sin, and everyone's sin placed on his body so that in some mysterious way, he becomes sin personified. Nailed on that cross, Jesus bears the full wrath and anger of God, bearing the punishment we deserve. Now, that's one part of the exchange. Our sin is taken by him. But there is another exchange, a profound legal exchange that completely changes the way that God views you now and for all eternity. See, going in uh, that direction, right? going in this direction, uh, is that Jesus takes our sin and in exchange, he gives us his perfect life. This is how God sees those who trust Jesus. They're not just innocent of wrong, but they are found to have always done what is good and right. When God looks at those who trust Jesus, he sees on his children the perfect life that mirrors his son, Jesus. Now, let's be really clear about this too. You didn't earn this. I didn't earn this. And none of us have deserved it. By sheer undeserved favor from God, what the Bible calls grace, what belonged to Jesus, his perfection now belongs to us. The perfect thoughts and actions of Jesus are gifted to you, so God now sees that. Okay, here's an illustration for how that works. <coughs> Some of you may have heard this before, but here it is again. Author and pastor David Platt uh, shares the story of how on his wedding day, uh, his wedding day brought some pretty big changes in his life, and here's what he shares. I remember when my wife and I were engaged in the year before we were married, and we were living totally different lives. I was finishing college on living on little income, actually no income, no cash flow, scraping by my last semesters, eating instant noodles for most of my meals. Meanwhile, Heather had graduated from college and was teaching at elementary school, which meant she had an income. She had cash flow. So she didn't have to eat instant noodles every day. After 12 months of waiting to be married, we finally stood in front of a crowd of friends and family ready to commit our lives to each other. And on that day, I received so many wonderful things, the most important of which was a beautiful, godly wife. But do you know what else I received on that day? Cash flow. It was glorious. At one moment, I stood there with nothing in my bank account. I said two words, I do. And all of a sudden, my bank account was full. 
And I didn't do, have to do anything to earn it. I didn't have to go to school and teach her kids. I didn't have to get a job anywhere else for that matter, simply because my life was now united with hers. Praise God that everything that belonged to her became mine. Oh, brothers and sisters, in a much greater way, when we come to Jesus, when we put our faith in him, when we trust him, praise God that at that moment, everything that belongs to him becomes ours. Now, I've labored this point because I want to make clear the identity of those who are standing before God in this picture. It is those who have trusted Jesus. Christians. And as you scan, and I've labored this point because I also want to make clear that in the final blessings of verses 15 to 17, that those belong only to Christians. See, as you scan through verses 15 to 17, you notice that each of the blessings corresponds with some of our deepest needs and desires. There's the need to be useful to work, to serve. So, and so with the privilege of being in his presence, Christians will serve God day and night. You see that there in verse 15. Eternity is not this picture of being lazy on a cloud strumming a harp. It's, and it's not quite an everlasting worship service. Ooh, I don't know about that. It does involve work and service. And there's also the need for safety in our lives, and you see it at the end of verse 15, provided for. At the end of verse 15, God shelters his people with his presence. A lifetime of hardship and opposition and persecution will seem light compared to his eternal protection. And so the safety we all yearn for in this life is found here eternally. The physical needs of God's people are also met. They shall hunger no more in verse 16, neither thirst anymore. I wonder if this also speaks of the metaphorical hungering and thirsting that we all have in life, right? The yearning for something more. Where every desire that we, can ha- that we have can sometimes be met in this life, but never satisfied. Right? The desire for approval from our work colleagues or our parents that desire for relationships that will not fail, that yearning for pleasure and joy that will last, that doesn't fade or slip through your fingers. Every desire is eternally satisfied in the presence of God. And then finally, in verse 17, there is the need for guidance and love. Guidance from the shepherd, the lamb, Jesus himself, who will guide his people to places of rest and eternal life. And finally, in that last line, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Last week, many tears were shed. We saw that in the passage we were looking at in Acts chapter 20, Paul and the elders shedding tears in their farewells. We saw that in ourselves as we shed tears, as we said farewell. And I said that tears express profound emotions that cannot be put into words. And I've been thinking a bit more this week, and I've also realized that tears express love, but they express love cut short. That's why we cry at funerals. 
because our love for our loved ones has been cut short. That's why we cry when we have to say goodbye to friends who we've gotten to know and cherish because our love will be cut by the inability to see them regularly. Whether by choice or by circumstances, our love ends before we want it to, and we cry. That's why I don't think, I don't think it's life after death which causes our tears to be wiped away. What wipes away our tears is love after death. God wipes away our tears. There will be no more sadness or crying because we will never have love cut off again. Who are the people who get to experience these deep, deep blessings? Only those who have trusted Jesus for their forgiveness and life. Only those who have persevered through life trusting Jesus until the end. The whole point of this passage is to say that God is holding back judgment. He is holding back the second coming of Jesus until every child of his hears the gospel, believes, and is accounted for. <clears throat> so if you're sitting here and you know that your sin is still upon you, that you haven't understood and trusted that great exchange, then let me tell you, you have time to work that out, but I don't know how much time. So let me encourage you, while there is still breath in you, to find out more about Jesus. Come to the life course. Speak to Jordan at the end of this, uh, 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 our, our time together today. Speak with your friends who brought you here today. Let me invite you to trust Jesus today for the forgiveness of your sins, for the wiping away of your shame and the exchange of his perfect life for yours. Let me invite you to come and to know these blessings of all our needs and desires satisfied eternally. Now, if you are sitting here and you're a follower of Jesus, can I ask you, does this picture in Revelation 7 comfort you? Our time is a funny thing in the book of Revelation. Our passage begins with angels holding back God's judgment so that all God's people can be sealed, can be found, collected, and gathered. And yet the picture of God's people in Revelation 7 also does seem to be future at the same time. Right? The in-gathering, the final gathering where God's people from everywhere are called and collected in Christ and they get to experience His joyful presence and eternal love forevermore. And, you know, this means for us two things. First, we know this means that there is still a mission ahead for us. And secondly, we know that as long as the angels are holding back the judgment, as long as Jesus has not returned we know that there are people who belong to Jesus who just don't know it yet. Who just need to hear the gospel, to be prayed for, and who will turn to trust him. Maybe that will mean we need to get cracking on how we can be more intentional in our evangelism and our mission. 
We've got those co-workers, we've got friends, we've got families, we've got um, you know, friends at school and so forth that we're thinking, and sharing, uh, thinking of sharing the gospel with. So let's prayerfully get moving on that. Let's stop stalling. Maybe it means that we start to take our family devotional time a bit more seriously. The fathers here in this room and the fathers-to-be, the fathers who want to be, Maybe this passage reminds you that your children's spiritual state is your responsibility. And if we want our children to stand among the countless multitude, we will need to take our role more seriously. Maybe this means also, as a church, we keep thinking ahead. Centenary Evangelical Church kicks off today. Praise God for that. But what about the next church plant? I'm not thinking next week, not, nor next month, nor even next year, but when? I know that some of us are still feeling the grief of planting. You know, for me personally, I, I didn't feel that emotional last Sunday. I think mostly because I've been thinking about the church plant for the last 18 months. Right? We've been planning for it, we've been gearing up, there's been a lot of changes to think through and lead through, and then I was also a bit sick last Sunday. But you know when it hit me? It was Monday and Tuesday. And it wasn't because I was thinking about them, you know, they're still around, but this is what happened. This is when it hit me. It hit me when I wasn't expecting it. It's when Ben and Faith and the CEC team started leaving our ministry group chats on WhatsApp and Messenger. Ben Ho has left. Wow. Marilyn Lowe left. Nick and Loran Cheong left. I, I didn't think about that. No one told me about that. And it hit differently. So again, I'm in, I'm in no particular rush to experience that again. But, but, But I come back to this picture in Revelation. I see the countless number of people out there who haven't yet heard of Jesus. And I think they've only got such a short time before they meet Jesus in either judgment or joy. That picture of the eternal church should push all of us to keep thinking ahead. More people need to hear about Jesus. More churches need to be planted. And with that comes more leaders who need to be raised up and those who are willing to serve. There's a lot of work ahead. But the eternal glory of this picture is worth it. Right? Let me pray. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, many more people need to be saying that than crying out in judgment, under the judgment. So we pray that you would help us as your church. Help us to recover 
um, and to heal from the grief of saying goodbye and our, to our friends and our family as we sent them off to our church plant. But, Father, reorient our minds quickly as well to see the lost. Help our hearts and our minds not to turn inward, but to keep thinking outwardly, to keep thinking of the multitude that need to be represented in this count. We praise you and thank you that we are included by your grace. And we ask that you'll work in us so that more will be included to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty and beautiful name. Amen.